Good morning. Uh, my name is Craig Wissinger. I get to serve with our high school ministry. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is honorable, sorry, dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Linworth. How many of you had the opportunity last night to see the portrayal of C.S. Lewis downtown. Anybody? I know that Jim and Bo Nicholson were there. I don't see them here this morning. We were up in the balcony and could see them, see them on the first floor and watch them. It was really a very, it's a one man show. It is incredibly moving. It was so moving that when it was over, Louise looked at me and she said, that was incredible. What, what, what do you think? And I just couldn't speak. I, I, I couldn't speak a word. It was so moving. And I'm so thrilled that this particular organization that sponsored this event, they believe in telling our story through the arts. And it is powerful and it contributes to what we are trying to accomplish in seeing spiritual and cultural change in our world. So anyway, when that comes back, they are, this is actually the second and there, there are sequels coming. I would really encourage you to go is at the Southern Theater, which is a beautiful, beautiful venue. It's about a 90 minute uh, demonstration portrayal. It's very well done. There's incredible excellence. And if you've read C.S. Lewis, you know how incredibly insightful his voice and his message remains, even though we're 40 or 50 years beyond, beyond his life. Well, we're going to be in 2 Timothy today. It's page 995. Let me introduce it this way. The Presidential Medal of Freedom is our country's highest civilian honor. And according to the White House, it is presented to individuals who have made exemplary contributions to the prosperity, values, or security of the United States, world peace, or other significant societal, public, or private endeavors. Now, in 2022, President Biden awarded 17 individuals with this honor, including gymnast Simone Biles, Steve Jobs, and John McCain posthumously, and Denzel Washington. Winners of the award are selected by the president, are nominated by the Distinguished Civilian Service Awards Board. Now there are a few, if you look at the entire list, there are a few, but not many religious leaders uh, on that list. And I don't think simple local church pastors make it on. 
I could find Bucks and Joes and Margarets, but I could not even find anyone named Chris on the list. I don't know about you, but I am not holding my breath to hear my name called out. Nor are my friends or family waging an advertising campaign on my behalf, as we see in the pursuit of other honors. Certainly to be honored by a distinguished office holder, such as the President of the United States, is quite an accomplishment. And while this is true, how would it compare to being recognized and honored by the King of the universe, if such a thing were possible? Well, according to scripture, it is. And this motivational dynamic is part of what our text today is about. Craig read the passage to us. I want to answer these four questions about it. Number one, what is spiritual leadership? Number two, what exactly is false teaching in this context? Three, what is the way of a Jesus when addressing false teachers? And four, how can I be useful to the master? We're going to touch on a lot of topics. We're going to go a lot of places this morning. I do want to encourage you to have the Bible open in front of you. It's, again, page 995 if you have our, uh, our text, our, our Bible. It'll help you. But let's pray. And uh, because this will really require your full attention, let's pray and ask God through the Holy Spirit to impart something dynamic and powerful to us this morning. Father, as a... As your people, as your church, we come before you this morning and in connection with other believers here in our city and around the world, we come before you today, Father, and say that we are yours. We belong to you. Uh, you have a right to us. Our lives do not belong to, our, to one another or, or to ourselves. And so we pray that our hearts and our minds might Give ourselves to the, the, the attention and the respect and the heart to learn this morning as we allow your truth to invade us and to engage us and to get inside of us. Thank you for all the resources, Father. And I do pray this morning as we sing, as we have communion together, following the message, I do pray that we could savor the goodness of God and savor the goodness of Christ this morning in all that he is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at that first question. What is spiritual leadership? We have to keep this in focus that remembering this letter was written to a pastor. Its primary application is to leaders. Now, there are lessons for all of us indeed, but to interpret the book correctly, we cannot lose sight of this. And this is a discipleship letter. Paul, uh, spiritual father, is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, and it is a call for Timothy to deny himself and to follow Jesus. No other way about it. This is a book about discipleship. And I, I'm beginning with this question so that we can see the forest through the trees. And I want to thank particularly John Stott, a writer, uh, English pastor, now passed away, but I, I had not seen this before. Um, what he saw, again, in being able to see the forest through the trees, namely that this second chapter is a series of metaphors describing spiritual leadership. Now, we began with uh, several last week, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, Pastor Nick, did a great job explaining those to us, but it does not end there. The leadership metaphors continue. In verse 15, for example, the leader is pictured as a worker, a laborer, someone working in a common trade, plying their craft, growing in skillfulness. Next, in verse 20, the leader is likened to an item in your home. 
such as select or expensive dinnerware that is brought out for only special guests. Even in the humble uh, home that I grew up in, my mother still had a set of dinnerware kept in a hutch in our kitchen that was only brought out on very special occasions. All this as opposed to the plastic kind of plates and normal dinnerware that we used on an everyday uh, night of the week. And finally, in verse 24, the leader is pictured as a household servant, one who does not prioritize his own needs, but keeps the needs of others in the forefront. All of these taken together present a multifaceted picture of what leadership in the kingdom of God entails. Pulling these all together, and paraphrasing Stott now, it is a compelling image. As good soldiers, as athletes who keep their eyes fixed on the goal and keep the rules, and as hardworking farmers, leaders must be totally dedicated to their work. As unashamed workmen, they must study hard and be accurate and clear in their teaching of the Bible. If they follow Paul's admonition, they will see that as their most important task. They will tackle it no matter what. As vessels for honorable use, they will pursue holiness and seek to cleanse themselves from both public and private sin. And finally, as servants to others, they must be gentle as Jesus was, bearing under opposition or criticism without becoming resentful. Each of these metaphors drill down on an individual quality. Together they draw a composite picture of what biblical leadership is in the mold of Jesus. Additionally, these qualities lay down the conditions of being used by God. These qualities make up the prerequisites of bearing fruit that will last and hold up through the test of time and fire. Only if we give ourselves to soldiering, running, and farming can we expect results. Only if we communicate the truth of the Bible and not merely air out our own opinions. Only if we do the hard spade work of discovering the Bible's meaning and not imposing our version of truth on it. Only then can we be approved by God and not ashamed. Only if we seek purity of heart and mind can we be a vessel that the grace of God can pour through. Only if we are gentle and not angry or reactive to those who oppose us, can we experience God opening eyes and granting a change of heart? Quoting Stott in conclusion, he writes, again, about leaders, such is our heavy responsibility to labor and suffer for the gospel. And no wonder the chapter begins with an exhortation to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you are a full-time person, uh, individual, worker in the gospel, if you're a pastor, if you're a missionary, if you're an evangelist, if you're a Bible teacher, if you play the role of an elder in a church, if you are on staff with a church or ministry organization, this is the tapestry of your calling. This is the standard that God calls you to. And it is a rich, and if you're aspiring to it, be aware that this is what it is. And it is a rich and rewarding life, and it is one of sacrifice and hard work. And by God's grace, through his infinite patience, I've been at it. I've been at it for almost 40 years, 40 years, and I would not trade it. It has been an honor, and I have no regrets about following this path. My only regret is I wish I could have, through life, just adhered to it a little better. 
Now, most of you will not be full-time workers in the gospel in this way. So how does all this apply to you? Well, one, please pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for your pastors. But not just your pastors. Pray also for our mission partners. Pray for Tom Short. Pray for Abby Hubacher. Pray for John Paul and the other men and women that we work alongside of. You know, to ask you for prayer is not a trite saying. Friends, you support and hold us up through your prayers. This is part of the vital partnership between church members and their leaders. All throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul builds community and connectedness through being vulnerable and asking for prayer. There was a recognition on his part of the spiritual nature of his work and the role that the prayers of others played. And friends, secondly, as we hand the baton to the next generation, we need all of you to pray that God would raise up new leadership in our church. Just because it happened in the past does not mean we can take it for granted that it will happen again. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to raise up spiritual leaders. And we participate in that through our intentional efforts, but ultimately God must do it. Unless the Lord builds the house, the psalmist prayed, we labor in vain. Our elders have been praying. Our staff is praying. Those coming to our kingdom prayer times on Tuesday morning have been praying that God will raise up a new generation of leaders. And as a member of our church, as a person interested in the future of this church, will you commit to praying for a new generation of pastors, staff, evangelists, and kingdom workers in the gospel? Will you commit to that? Will you partner with us in that? Okay, again, this is seeing the forest through the trees in terms of this second chapter. So, having taken this big picture view, let's now drill down into some of the specifics. What exactly is the false teaching? The second question on our outline. Well, it is something in this false teaching that Paul takes extremely seriously. The language throughout, if you noticed, is strong. It's urgent. And the context here is a teaching that takes place inside the walls of the church. It is not so much a secular philosophy that Paul is confronting, but what's happening under the banner of Jesus. And the men he lists by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they had once followed, it's apparent, they had once followed the apostolic teaching, the, 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 the teaching that was carefully handed down from the words of Jesus. And their claim was that the resurrection had already taken place. What does that mean? What does that mean that the resurrection had already taken place? Well, it could not mean Jesus' resurrection, for that was an agreed-upon fact of which there was no doubt. That was in the rearview mirror. So it's not a reference to the resurrection of Christ. This is in reference to a future resurrection of human beings. This is something that Jesus taught. This is something that Paul taught elsewhere. It goes something like this. That just as we all die physically, we will all be resurrected. And in that resurrection, we will face judgment and enter into our eternal home, either heaven or hell. And this resurrection will occur when Jesus returns to the earth to establish his new kingdom. But here is the twist. 
This alternative teaching asserted that the second resurrection had already occurred. We are, as, we are already as we will be. One commentator spelled out the implications of such thinking. In this view, the future is now. Believers already enjoy the full benefit of God's eternal forgiveness. So live however you wish. Your soul is already saved forever. So what you do with your body doesn't matter. You see, they did not appreciate the already but not yet tension that we've talked about so many times here. In this view, there is no cause for suffering. There's no need to carry your cross. There are no difficulties for the church. We are already in a position of perpetual triumph. And see, Paul's difficulties, therefore, are put under a new light. Suffering for Jesus, as Paul called Timothy to, actually that suffering was not an honor. It's not something to call people to, but rather it's a source of shame. And a sure indication, Paul, that you're not in the will of God. You're not blessed by God. Now, this was completely upside down to what Jesus plainly taught. And it is why Paul said it has destroyed the faith of some. Now, that false teaching of 2,000 years ago has spinoffs today. Surprise, surprise. And it is pervasive in the unstated worldview of our culture. That being, what happens in or with your body is not really important. Because the body is simply matter, and your body contains no inherent sacredness. We can do with it whatever we want without any ethical implications. We can hook up. We can have sex outside the bounds of covenant marriage. We can even add a person to our sexual experience. It doesn't matter. We can break down the male-female boundary. We can mutilate our bodies. We can rebel against the biology of our bodies and impose our meaning on it. Of course we can do that if this is only a collection of molecules and the only thing that really matters is the mind or the soul. Now, we've been saying this off and on a long time, but this kind of monstrous mind-body dichotomy is not what the Bible teaches. And neither does it align with what we have learned from biology, psychology, and even common sense. In Western culture, sexuality and its expression is held to be the highest form of self-expression. It is regarded as the key to liberation and freedom. Again, this we've talked about many times, but here's why I'm bringing it up this morning. Here's the point relative to what we're going through in 2 Timothy. You see, this view, pervasive in our Western culture, is more attractive in a Christ-haunted nation like ours if we can attach to it some spiritualized version of a Jesus who nods his head in approval. Thus, we create the fiction of a spiritual private Jesus who does not care what we do with our meaningless bodies as long as we keep our minds and spirits intact. Now, this thinking in various iterations is an attractive gospel and it is spreading in our culture. How attractive was this alternative Jesus in ancient Ephesus, where Paul and Timothy, or Timothy's working? Look at verse 17. 
Paul said it will spread like gangrene. How devastating is this? I like how one version of the Bible puts it, verse 17. Their teachings are as dangerous as blood poisoning to the body and spread like sepsis from a wound. Gangrene spreads fast throughout the body, and if not arrested, you know this, you can have a limb amputated or you can die from a quickly spreading bacteria. This is dangerous stuff. This is the metaphor Paul uses to describe this. My mother survived sepsis, though it was harrowing for a while. It was definitely harrowing. Afterwards, she did live another seven or eight years, but mentally and emotionally, she was never quite the same. False teaching always has been, and false teaching always will be. And we must say one more thing here, if I could, if I just drag you a little bit longer on this point. Just say one more thing before we go to the next point. And it is obvious at one level, but especially pertinent for today. The existence of false teaching presupposes that there is a true teaching. There is truth to be discovered and known. As Christians, we believe God has revealed true truth. And so we reject the postmodern assumption that says there is no universal or knowable truth. And we reject the assumption that if someone claims to know universal truth, it is the highest form of arrogance and it is only a means to power. It is only a means when one claims to know universal truth, it is only a means to gain control over others. Now, let me just comment a little bit more on this to show how quickly, again, the church can leave the rails on these kinds of things. Because if we're to be honest, friends, right? If we're to be honest, people who say that claims of truth are only claims to power, they can point to church history and sadly find many examples where this was the case where church leaders leveraged the claim to absolute truth in abusive ways. One thinks of Dostoevsky's chilling Grand Inquisitor. No, this is not the Grand Inquisitor that answers to Darth Vader. Different <laughs> Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor, if you're not aware of it, is a story inside of a story. You can, actually buy, you can buy the book separately, but it's a story inside of a story. It is inside the book, many consider this to be the greatest novel ever written, the brothers Karamazov. And the Grand Inquisitor describes a fictional account of Jesus returning to the earth in the Middle Ages. And he comes to the place where the Inquisition is at. It comes at the time and the place where the Inquisition is at its apex. He comes to Seville, Spain, the 1500s. And Jesus begins doing miracles. And he begins teaching. And the people flock to him. And he's recognized as Jesus. And after doing all these miracles and teachings, the church leaders come to him and have him imprisoned. This was a period of time, obviously, where you, you know, where the church was trying and executing, executing those who opposed it, which included people that believed some of the things that we believe. And so church leaders placed Jesus himself into prison in order to control his influence. And at a moment, he was visited by the Grand Inquisitor. And the Inquisitor goes on a long verbal attack of Jesus. And defending himself, he alleges that the church rules the world in the name of God, but it must use the devil's methods. Jesus says, the Inquisitor, your high view of humanity and human freedom is mistaken. People, people must not just be led People must be controlled. Now, indeed, 
This is a terribly sad record. And here's why I bring it up this morning, why it's relevant to what I've been saying throughout this morning. Because this kind of history reinforces why the template Paul laid out for spiritual leadership is so vital. Because abuses, terrible abuses have taken place in the church because the model and standard of leadership has been so terribly compromised throughout history. Now, in case you're wondering, I am not suggesting this is only a problem with Catholicism. It's a problem throughout the Protestant world as well. And I'll say this to close out this point, but also as an admonition to those of you who will go on 5, 10, 15 years from now in this church, the temptation to drift away from the simple model of New Testament leadership is ever before us. It's ever before us. Let's go to the third point. What is the way of Jesus when addressing false teachers are teaching? On this question, first look at verse 22, if you would. We look at verse 22. It says, we are to flee the evil desires of youth and pursue all these great goals. Faith, love, peace, righteousness. Good stuff, right? This is good stuff. Fleeing from something wrong means not negotiating with it, not standing around having a conversation with it, but fleeing and pursuing. This two-folded approach of dealing with sin, off, on, push, pull, is vital to transformation. And friends, it's even a universal principle that can be discovered outside the walls of faith. For example, in the world of Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a phrase for those who flee alcohol but do not pursue recovery. It is called a dry alcoholic. It describes someone who is trying to stop drinking alcohol without replacing it with something better. The activities, meaning the activities and healthy relationships that genuinely meet the underlying needs. And certainly when this is the case, most do eventually revert back to the alcoholism. Now, so often as Christians, we have applied this verse only around these more passionate sins like sexual purity or anger. And certainly you can do that. All of these dynamics of fleeing and pursuing are in play. But for our purposes this morning, what is the context? Look at the following verse, 23. The context is, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they only produce quarrels. What we are to flee are quarrels over insignificant things. Getting into verbal fights or digital spats over issues based on speculation or just one person's opinion, subjective opinion, over another. Or getting into deep theological battles that are of little consequence, which I have done more than a few times. You know, there must have been a lot of this because the warnings against this are littered throughout this passage. And why does Paul say that these are the evil desires of youth? Is there such a thing? Again, this is why we often liken this passage to sexuality, but this is not the context. Youth has its strengths and weaknesses. But the reality then and now is this, that young people are more apt to be hotheads. They are more inclined to insist on a narrow interpretation of a point of theology. They are more, they're more apt not to discern opinion versus fact or to state very strong opinions without nuance. These are temptations of youth universally including when they're a part of the church. Now, if you're a young person, and in the context here, that's people under 40. <laughs> Don't disparage me, or Paul for that matter. 
He is not singling you out as the only problem. There are temptations inherent to being older. Believe me. But that's for another time and another teaching. Now, we must be careful not to misapply this. We know that Paul is not granting moral equivalency to every belief or practice. Some beliefs are more important than others. There are things to fight for and contend for. Paul called out Peter when Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles. He's confronting right here the aforesaid teachers on their view of the resurrection and their licentious lifestyle. And it is when we have to enter into confrontation about significant issues, issues that relate to the gospel, that Paul gives us the pattern for Je for, from Jesus to follow. Again, notice the prescription. Kind to everyone. 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 Underline that. Everyone. Able to teach. Plainly, simply, not resentful, not resentful because you're, you're, you're bearing being misunderstood. You're bearing being unfairly judged. You're bearing being unfairly criticized. That's why one would grow resentful, not resentful, and then gently instruct. This is the way of Jesus. These conversations and confrontations, friends, were here in 2 Timothy, were taking place in the context of the church family. The, this church had been shaken to its core from this false teaching and very contentious conversations. And it is obvious that these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were men of influence who had siphoned away people from the church. And into this hot cauldron, Timothy is to walk in the path of Jesus, not being reactive, not absorbing on himself the anxiety of others, not adopting their method of argumentation, but to patiently and gently lay out the truth in a simple and clear manner. What a tall prescription for anyone. And here he says, Paul, you're just, or Timothy, stay engaged and don't give up. Stay in these conversations with the hope that God will break through. Again, let's just apply this to all of us for a moment into our current climate, 2024, into the rigid polarization of our culture and how quickly we cut people off and out. Could there be a more important facet of life where our light might shine more brightly in the hallways of work or on digital platforms or in Bible discussion groups? What if, friends, what if we were to, dis to discern carefully between opinion and fact? What if we were to let go of non-consequential issues? What if we were less concerned about the need to intellectually score and impress? What if we were to recognize nuance in another's argument when it's there? What if we did not have some unstated internal need to state things as strongly as we think we must? And in so doing, empty out all the air in the room for others to talk and respond, and maybe have a different opinion? What if we were kind? What if we were gentle? What if we were not resentful? What if we were a little more thick-skinned and not so easily hurt? Could our way of relating embody Jesus and be used of God to turn the course in a person's life? making what we believe desirable and making the wisdom of what we believe undeniable. You know, as we move into what is going to prove to be a very voluble election season, could this passage be one we lean into to help us with our witness? 
okay? All right, one more final point before we go to our final question. Skip over, we didn't read this, but skip over to chapter 3, verse 5. One more point about our response to false teaching, to false teachers, how we walk in the ways of Jesus. Look at verse 5, chapter 3. It says, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. Paul has just listed 19 negative characteristics or traits of people, and these reveal a sharp decline in human nature that will mark the last days and probably grow increasingly worse. Now these traits, if you look at that chapter, they begin with the disordered loves of people. Paul said they will be, they will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Then he concludes in verse 4 by saying they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What is Paul saying by that? By beginning and ending, talking about a disordered loves. What he's saying is that humanity's problem is not the mind, nor its reasoning powers, nor its lack of knowledge, nor its lack of education. It is a problem with the heart, with our loves, with our affections. These will be terrible times, Paul says to Timothy. Mark it down. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. What are the last days? Well, according to Acts chapter 2 and Hebrews 1, they describe the epic of time that we are living in right now, the age of the church and our witness to the world after Jesus ascended to heaven. It, it could not be the literal last days of the world. Because Timothy is told to have nothing to do with such people. In other words, it was his present experience in the first century. And now notice the point. He says, have nothing to do with these people. Now, I highlight this because this is different than the counsel given in verse 25 to gently instruct those who oppose you. Again, note... These people with upside-down hearts claim some version of the truth. And to these people, they had apparently reached a point where they were no longer open to change, and they were actually guilty of sexual exploitation and sexual abuse as described. Again, under the banner of Jesus. Under the banner of Jesus, they were guilty of sexual abuse and sexual exploitation described in verses 6 through 10. Paul says here, a complete separation is needed for the sake of the church and its witness. Sometimes words or appeals no longer have any effect. Separation is needed and is the most loving act for everyone involved. This is tough love that requires discernment and wisdom. Okay? All right. How are we doing? We doing all right? One last point. Fourth question. How can I be useful to the master? How can I be useful to the master? I think I've told this story before. Forgive me if I have. I've been preaching too long. I can't remember the stories I've shared and not shared. In a train station in Baltimore, President James Garfield of Ohio, and he was on his way to being a great president, FYI. He was shot twice, but he did not die until 80 days later of complications from sepsis. He might have survived had he not been compromised by the interventions that followed at the hands, literally at the hands of his surgeons both on the day of the shooting and subsequent treatments. The American College of Surgeons says that inserting a finger into the wound was a basic part of examination of a gunshot wound at that time. And many American surgeons at that time had not as accepted the growing knowledge of aseptic techniques as basic as hand washing and wearing surgical gloves. Now, we have at least one surgeon here this morning. There may be some others. 
And I'm going to guess that John here and others, when a surgeon chooses an instrument to do their work, they must not only choose the right instrument, but also a clean one. At least one hopes so if they are the subject of the operation. Well, God, too, when he needs to choose an instrument to get something done, chooses a clean vessel and a clean instrument. If we hope, friends, to be used of God, it is vital that we learn how to cleanse ourselves from lesser things and pursue holiness over public and private sins. Entering into his service, whether big or small, is life's greatest privilege. You may not get a presidential medal of freedom for it, you'll be recognized by the king of the universe and honored by him. Now, what is holiness? And again, we have to get away from this, this vision of holiness as just living like in a, living somewhere far away from people and not engaged with people and not loving people. When you think of holiness, think of the word wholeness. W-H-O-L-N-E-S-S. Think of the concept of an integer, you math lovers. Think of the idea of integrity. It's related to the word integer. Holiness means that all the parts of your life hang together and are consistent with one another. Your loves, your affections, the desires of your heart are rightly ordered so that they align with the will of God. See, this is how a verse like Psalm 37, 4 actually works, which says to delight yourself, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. How does that happen? Because your heart is aligned with his are from Jesus himself, who said essentially the same thing. If you remain in me and my words have their effect. They remain in you. They're powerfully working inside of you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You see, to grow in holiness is to become more whole, more integrated. Your mind, emotions, and will converging together into a single focus of loving God and loving others. Loving God more than pleasure. Loving God more than yourself. Loving God more than your possessions. Loving God more than your reputation. And increasingly becoming more like Jesus. That's holiness. Growing in holiness, friends, is a precondition to being used by God. You don't have to be perfect, obviously. If that were the case, none of us could be used by God. But growing in holiness is a precondition of being used by God. And it is a precondition. We've talked a lot about God's power this past year. And my goodness, how we need God's power. Holiness is a precondition for experiencing God's power. This passage is one for leaders, granted. But derivatively, it does apply to each and every one of us. How do we grow in holiness? Again, you reflect on this more. Flee sin, pursue righteousness, and gather regularly with like-minded people. And you will grow in holiness. G. Campbell Morgan, great British expositor of the uh, early and mid-20th century, said this, knowing God means taking all that you have and placing it at the disposal of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Can you pray this three-word prayer? Lord, use me. Lord, use me. Can you offer your life to him? Can you say that my life 
King of Kings. My life, Lord of Lords, is at your disposal. Use me however you wish. Use me however you will. Will you stand, please? I would like to lead us this morning, and I, I can't find a better way to say it, but to lead us this morning in a prayer of commitment, a prayer of consecration, a prayer of setting yourself apart for this. And I'd like you to close your eyes. And if it helps you, and certainly it can help you, you know, again, talking about mind and body integration, you know, the way that what we do with our bodies can often be an expression of what's happening inside of our hearts. And it, it can be a symbiotic relationship, one helping the other. So if it helps you, if it does help you, just take your hands and just, just hold them upright. Just hold them upright as a way of as a way of indicating, Lord, my life is yours. And now let's, I want to just lead us in this prayer. Lord, take my life, it's yours. Take my hands. Let them move at the impulse of your love. Take my voice. Take my lips. Let them sing to you and be used for you. Take my money. Take everything I own. They are at your disposal. Take my mind. Take my intellect. Take every power as you choose. Father, take my will. Take my heart. They are no longer mine, but yours. King of kings and Lord of lords, take all of me. Amen. Would you just stay standing as we sing together?